Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and part two of our exclusive interview with Mike Campbell, author of The Truth at Last. There are many who say that the enigma of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan is best left untold. Embarrassment of Japan at this time would not be wise, they say. What good can it do to rake over old coals? My answer is a simple one. With most Americans... The individual still counts. Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan fought a battle for most of their lives against the sea and the elements, not against men bent on war. We orbit men around our earth and turn our eyes to the stars and what may lie beyond because of the courage and contribution of such as Earhart and Noonan. If they won their greatest victory only to become the first casualties of World War II, the world needs to know. Honor for them is long overdue. Mike Campbell, author, blogger, and Earhart Authority, is our guest today for part two of Amelia Earhart, The Truth at Last. Mike, how are you doing today? Good, John. Thanks. It's really good to be with you. I really appreciate your interest in this. We spent our first episode pretty much establishing their presence in the Marshall Islands and then moved them to Kwajalein, and now it's time to take them to Saipan. We have an eyewitness that uh, that told Paul Rafford Jr., one of the best known of the Earhart researchers, Paul Rafford Jr., wrote a book called Amelia Earhart's Radio. A witness told Paul Rafford that he saw the, the flyers, the white man and woman, uh, board a plane on Kwajalein. He didn't say whether it was a sea. Oh, I'm sorry. He did say it was a land-based plane that he saw them get into. Of course, he doesn't know, you know where that plane flew. But it's, there's a good, strong chance that that was the plane that, that in which they arrived on Saipan. All we know is is that we have the primary witnesses on Saipan, um, Josephine Blanco Akayama, who's the primary one among all of them, who was there when they landed, belly landed in the silver plane, the way she described it in the harbor. Okay, so the jury is still out, whether it was a Japanese seaplane or a land-based plane that was in trouble, okay? The most important thing is that we know that they were there sometime in the summer of 1937. We're not exactly sure. 
We didn't really talk about a whole lot of the witnesses, the other witness that uh, onside pan that were interviewed by Fred Gurner and also by Operation Earhart, uh, uh, the two officers, Robert Dinger and Joseph Gervais, also in 1960. There are so many other eyewitnesses. One of the one of the eyewitnesses that really strikes me the most is is a guy named Dr. Manuel Aldon, who uh, talked to Fred Gurner in 1960 in June. Aldon was one of the first of the witnesses that was interviewed by Gurner on Saipan in June of 60. Aldon actually uh, was told by Japanese officers that the person that they were keeping on Saipan, the, the white uh, woman flyer, Aldon was a dentist on Saipan, Saipan. Okay, And at that time, his only, his only clients were Japanese officers. Because they took over on Saipan, and, they, and he was the only skilled dentist that they had. So the Japanese officers actually told Aldon that the name of the woman flyer that they had on Saipan in 1937 was Erharto. Erharto. Okay. For me, that I mean, that is a money quote of of all the money quotes. Okay. And so, you know, there were many other witnesses as well, native Saipanese witnesses on Saipan. Dozens, in fact, by the time that uh, Gurner got finished. Not, uh, not all eyewitnesses, but, but several of, of them were. I've got Gurner's notes uh, with, the, with the gentleman you just mentioned, um, Dr. Manuel Alden. Would you like me to read them? Sure. Among Gurner's original 13 witnesses on Saipan was Dr. Manuel Alden, a dentist and native Saipanese who understood Japanese, told Gurner he didn't see the white woman or man, but offered an important detail he overheard from a Japanese officer. Quote, I dealt with high officials on the island and knew what they were saying in Japanese, Alden said. The name of the lady I hear used, this is the name the Japanese officer said, Erharto. Alden said he heard much about Erhart from his patients, and in 1937, these were restricted to Japanese officers. The officers made jokes about the United States using women as spies, Alden told Gurner. They said that American men did not have the courage to come and spy themselves. Right. Yeah. So I mean, that's a real powerful. That's a real powerful witnesses. Uh, w- uh, witness. So a couple of the uh, very good witnesses that were interviewed by Joe Gervais and Robert Dinger following Gurner's arrival on Saipan. Gurner was on Saipan and left, and then they showed up pretty shortly after these two Air Force officers at the time. And they interviewed one guy named Antonio M. Cepeda. He was a 52-year-old employee, Buick employee at Agana on Saipan. And Cepeda said, one summer, about two years after I got married, I saw an American woman who was referred to by some as the American spy woman. She was quartered on the second floor of the hotel Kobayashi Royakon in the summer of 1937. I don't remember any plane crash, but the girl I saw twice on two separate occasions, I saw her while going to work outside the hotel, which is located in East Garapan Village. She wore unusual clothes, a long raincoat belted in the center. The uh, color was a faded khaki. Um, Chest somewhat flat, not out like other American girls. Her uh, hair appeared to be a reddish-brown color and cut uh, short like a man's hair, trimmed close in the back like a man. She did not wear powder or lipstick, as I see other American women wear now. Another of the Gervais and Dinger witnesses, Carlos Palacios, gave them basically the same story about seeing the white woman at the hotel uh, on the second floor. He saw her several times as well. 
they both identified photos of her. You can just go on with these. We have later on in our talk, we'll talk about Matilda uh, uh, Areola, who lived near, right near the hotel as a child and actually dealt with her personally, dealt with Amelia Hart personally, had some personal, uh, you know, some give and take with her and gave her things and uh, had a very, probably one of the closest, if not the closest relationship of any of the Saipanese with Amelia Earhart. Now, this Matilda Areola is a key uh, figure for more than one reason, and we'll get back to her later. But I think it's important, John, that we move to Saipan 1944 with the GIs. Absolutely. Let's do that. Why don't we start with Divine, since that's what inspired you? First of all, you know, yeah, that set the scene here. We have in Saipan... 1944, June 15th, we're talking about the invasion of Saipan, which at, up at, uh, or at that time was the most important conflict in the Pacific War. If we would not have won Saipan, we probably wouldn't have won this Pacific War. It was a huge battle. We basically wiped out the Japanese garrison of 30,000 uh, soldiers on Saipan, and uh, we lost 4, 000, about 4,000 were, or no, about 3,000 of our own men were killed, but over 10,000 were wounded. It was really, really a bloody, bloody battle. Saipan is very often uh, overlooked because of its proximity and time to Normandy and D-Day. So you don't hear much about Saipan. But on, as far as the Pacific War went, Saipan was really big. It opened the door to Okinawa and Iwo Jima, and, and, and we uh, established an air base on Saipan and also on neighboring Tinian, uh, the sister island of Saipan. And from Tinian, we, we, dropped the, we, we launched our aircraft, uh, B-29s, against Saipan, and we finally dropped the two uh, atom bombs that ostensibly ended the war, okay? So Saipan was it, was very big. Thomas Devine was a postal sergeant in the 244th Army Postal Unit. He was not in the, in the initial assaults on Saipan. He was one of the people that was held back until it was pretty much uh, considered secure. His job was to get on, get on the Saipan and to set up a post office. You know, so that we, our garrison force, which stayed on Saipan well over a year after after they the island was secured in, on July 9th, 1944, Devine was second in charge of the 244th Postal Unit. When he got to Saipan, he was ordered to go to Asleto Field uh, on an errand to meet with uh, by his commanding officer, who was uh, Lieutenant Fritz Liebig. And so they drove to Asleto Field. Asleto Field was the, the Japanese name for the air base on Saipan. Once they got there, Devine immediately her, uh, began hearing Marine officers arguing about who was going to get credit for discovering Earhart's plane in a hangar. Okay, so uh, Devine was immediately fascinated by all this. Uh, asked a uh, one of the Marine enlisted people who was guarding there. Uh, near adjacent to the hangar, if it was true uh, that they had found Earhart's plane, and the guy uh, told Devine, "Yes, but don't, but don't tell anybody." At at that moment, or very close to that moment, the airfield was was about to be uh, announced to be uh, off limits. At, even at that time, it, it, it sounds very uh, serendipitous because uh, uh, right around the time uh, Devine and, uh, and uh, Fritz Liebig arrived at Asledo to do some administrative work at the uh, headquarters there at Asledo, the field was then ordered off limits. 
because Earhart's plane had been discovered, okay? This is very big uh, to Devine, of course. He's also a little older than your normal GI. He was 28 years old at the time, uh, a little better educated as well. He was very curious about what was going on, and later that day he saw the uh, Earhart plane in flight, identified the uh, registration numbers, NR16020, saw it in flight. He saw it landing over there at the airfield after they had returned. Their bivouac area was close to Eslito Field. Later that day or pos or that night, maybe that night or the next night, it's hard to say. We know that Divine arrived there on the, uh, July 9th. We were able to figure that much out. One of the nights, either that night or the next night, before that night, Divine actually went back to the airfield and saw the plane, stood on the wings of the plane, and identified the plane again, up close and personal, NR16020. And he peered, into, on the many other he peered into the cockpit as yes. well, did he not? Yep. Yeah, and he peered in the, in the cockpit and the windows, and he said he saw glass, broken glass. And then later on, the police saw the plane. Uh, he heard an explosion from the airfield. He went back, and he saw the plane in flames. Okay? So, you know, this is pretty big stuff right here, you know. And uh, the, if it was only Divine that made this claim, then it would probably have gone by the wayside a long time ago, and a lot of people or would not know about Divine because he just wouldn't have been taken very seriously if it was just Divine saying all this. However, he wasn't alone with his claim. Several other GIs that we know of, and, there was, and of course it was more than we know of that actually knew about it because they were either later killed or they, they didn't know about Divine's book, which, which was suppressed, uh, they were dead or whatever, they died. But we have enough witnesses. When Divine came back, he looked for information about the plane, and he couldn't find anything. And he started to realize that this is all just this is all being covered up. This is this is not being discussed. So he carried all this around with him for many years. Finally, he was not a writer. Finally, in 1987, he published his book. His book, uh, "I Witnessed the Amelia Earhart Incident," which was immediately suppressed. And but it but it did get out. Word of it did get out it, to some people at least. At the end of his book. Divine asked for other GIs that were aware of the, of the of the Earhart plane on Saipan that are, that might have seen it or known other information about it to come forward and help him to establish the truth. Okay, so this 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 was his last his last plea, his closing plea in his chapter. His book is probably the, uh, in my opinion, probably the second or third most important of the Earhart early books. Next to Gurner's. Yeah, not only because it provided his eyewitness testimony, it was very, very believable, but also because of the people who ended up responding to that book, uh, like Erskine J. Neighbors. And I've got his statement that you had entered in your book. You'd like to hear that. Now go ahead. Why don't you take that away? Erskine J. Neighbors of Baldwin, Mississippi, 20-year-old Marine private in the secret message section of the 8th Marine Regiment, H&S Communication Platoon, wrote a letter in 1993 to Divine, that read like this. The communications platoon consisted of a wire section, radio section, and a message section, neighbors wrote, adding that he was assigned to the message section. We were on mopping up duty on the opposite end of Saipan from where we landed, which was the south end. The message came over our field radios. I decoded it and was quite excited when I read the message. The message read, the best I can remember, that Amelia Earhart's plane had been found at Aslito Field. This was about the middle of the morning. 
And neighbors continued. After I went back to my platoon, there was another message came through that said something about destroying the plane. Myself and two more boys went back down to the airfield to see it destroyed. And the message gave the time it was supposed to be destroyed. The best I can recall, the plane was pulled on the field by a jeep driven by some Marines. I've got ahead of myself. The first time we went down there, there wasn't anything done to the plane. That was the second day that the plane was pulled on the field. But we went both times and we learned the second time from a message that came off the radio. Picking up the plane being pulled on the field. The plane was facing north after the plane was parked and the jeep moved. A plane came over real low and the next pass he strafed the plane and it went up in a huge fireball. We were sitting on the west side of the airfield about 100 yards from the plane. We were on higher ground. As far as I remember, the ones that pulled the plane on the field and us guys from H&S 8th were the only ones there. We were not there officially. You know how Marines were. We had to see what was going on. Right. So neighbors, uh, neighbors' experiences is very, very key here. Very big. Very big. Um, his account was actually filmed by only one person, Rich Martini, uh, a researcher, went down, down to Baldwin to, uh, to, to uh, film neighbors. Martini has been trying to get funds for his movie for a long time, and, 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 and there's no, no interest in Hollywood about getting the truth out. None whatsoever. But in Neighbors was very li- reluctant from the start. He did not want any attention. He did not want even to, to uh, contact Divine. His family and his friends finally forced him to do it. Okay, M- Neighbors was very happy living uh, uh, in complete uh, anonymity in Baldwin, Mississippi. Okay, he, he was not looking for any, any attention whatsoever. I talked to him on the phone once. I had a long interview with him once. He seemed like a really great guy. I kind of regret that I didn't talk to him more than that. But I got enough from him, you know, and I heard enough about him and saw what he wrote to, the, to Divine to know that this is, Neighbors is a very sincere individual, a very good person. So, you know, along those lines, we have another Marine uh, and a very same basic rank, private, private first class. We have Robert E. Wallach. Okay, Robert E. Wallach was uh, in the 29th Marines. Uh, he was in the second wave that attacked Saipan, the western shore of Saipan, on um, June 15th. He was very lucky he even survived that, being in the second wave. He said the first wave, he said there was nobody left. Uh, I think he exaggerated a little. I looked up the, some of the information, but most of the first wave was gunned down by Japanese machine gunners. The same basic scene that was made famous in Saving Private Ryan happened with these Marines on Saipan, okay, for in, in the initial stages of the, of the assault. Uh, just nasty, uh, horrible things, uh, uh, battle, just, just, just really raw. And so Wallach survived. And a few, uh, a few weeks after, a few days, at least a few days after the island was declared secure on July 9th, Wallach said that he and some friends were looking, uh, were just uh, going around the island looking for souvenirs and, you know, just getting into whatever they could get into, okay? And they found in a Japanese administration building a locked safe. At that time, they had a um, demolition man with them, and the demolition man applied, applied the gel, and they blew the safe open. And guess what they found in the safe? Okay, they found... Amelia Earhart's briefcase. They found 
her bone dry briefcase with her papers, her photos, her uh, around the her maps, her visas, uh, everything that she needed during her around the world flight was found in this paperwork wise found in this briefcase by Robert Wallach. Wallach's account is here. If you'd like me to add that, yeah, sure. We entered what may have been a Japanese government building, picking up souvenirs strewn about. Under the rubble was a locked safe. One of our group was a demolition man who promptly applied some gel to blow it open. We thought at the time that we would all become Japanese millionaires. After the smoke cleared, I grabbed a brown leather attache case with a large handle and a flip lock. The contents were official-looking papers, all concerning Amelia Earhart. Maps, permits, and reports apparently pertaining to her around-the-world flight. I wanted to retain this as a souvenir, but my marine buddies insisted that it might be important and should be turned in. I went down to the beach where I encountered a naval officer and told him of my discovery. He gave me a receipt for the material and stated that it would be returned to me if it were not important. And I've never seen the material since. I wish to make a point, he wrote, concerning the attaché case and the contents. The case did not appear as if it had ever been immersed in water and the contents were not blurred at all. Therefore, these items could not have been obtained from a plane that had been reported down at sea some seven years prior to this event. Wallach's account was very big. Actually, he was one of the most, if not the most, media-friendly person uh, of, the, of, the, of all the GI witnesses. And he was uh, not shy at all about telling people his account. He was not like uh, neighbors at all. No, uh, Wallach was much more outgoing. I became very close with him. We had, uh, had numerous conversations. He was on um, with Connie Chung on CBS Eye to Eye. In 1993, he was on with her for about 10, 15 minutes. Now, this is very rare for anybody that, to, to be on a network program uh, in, at, at that time with Connie Chung uh, telling the truth about Saipan. Okay, this is like a fluke. I think that with the exception of the 2006 National Geographic special that nobody saw because it was on National Geographic, and in 2007, there were very few people who even got cable, uh, had National Geographic on their cable systems. But National Geographic did a special and went, at my insistence, I talked to the director and I got her to go and interview Wallach, okay? But outside of uh, Connie Chung and National Geographic, you won't hear anything on any sort of network. TV about Saipan. Uh, the sacred cow verboten uh, information about Saipan uh, you know, was still in effect and it was just getting worse all the time. Now, Unsolved Mysteries in 1990 also did a special with Robert Stack. That was the, mo the best known of any TV production that's ever been done about Saipan. Unsolved Mysteries 1990. Robert Stack had Divine on there, had Wallach on there, had Fred Gerner on there. Buddy Brennan also, who, who wrote a, an important book, was on there. And so it was a pretty good, uh, it was a pretty good expose on Saipan, treatment of Saipan. It lasted, I don't know, 45 minutes maybe. A good time to bring up, if, if you would please, tell our listeners how tough it was to get interviews out of these people on Saipan and what the Japanese had done to them in terms of their being willing to talk. Well, the people that weren't willing to talk were more. Uh, you're, you're going back to the Saipan, uh, the na the native Saipanese. I'm going. Okay. Yeah, I'm, actually, it was a, it was a two pronged question. One, going back to the native Saipanese, 
and two, uh, moving forward even to the 80s, uh, when there's still, uh, even today, when there's still a feeling on, from the, on the part of the Saipanese government that they'd rather just keep this whole thing closed. Well, the Saipanese government's policy on this uh, is actually, it's actually the, the Commonwealth of the Northern, Northern Mariana Islands, which is actually a territory of the United States. Okay, so the C, that's called the CNMI. Their policy is no different than the United States policy. Their policy, uh, they don't have a policy. They don't discuss it, period. There's, there's been no real official CNMI uh, declarations about Earhart on Saipan whatsoever. They just go along with the United States. You can't even get a, a, an official response anymore from the United States out of, about Saipan. Anybody that you, I don't even remember the last time an official response came out. They'll just refer you back to, to the, the Coast Guard report. That's really the last official report that they want to talk about. Uh, they won't even talk about the 1967 release of, the, of, the, of the, what they called the last of the declassified information, which was the ONI report, which we need to get to later. But, I mean, as far as the rubber on the road stuff, as far as the researchers... The early researchers like Gurner and Joe Gervais uh, on Saipan, they, they were constantly uh, running into this in 1960. Very few of the, of the people would, would even talk to them about it. They, the, um, and the, they just wouldn't talk. It was, it, it was only 16 years, 15 years since the war had ended. And they, 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 most of them, being, being basically uh, uneducated islanders, they didn't know if the Japanese were coming back or not. And they didn't want to have their heads cut off for revealing anything that they might have seen. So, you know, that was always a factor. You know, that was always a factor, and how it still is. How important was Father Sylvan Conover to getting testimony? Father Conover was one of the three missionary priests that Gurner went to when he first got to Saipan in 1960 to interview his uh, original 200 witnesses and where he found his uh, original 13 that corroborated Josephine's story in some way, shape, or form. Father Conover was one of the major people that that Gurner brought with him to his interviews because Gurner, well, the, the natives could not speak English. Basically, they spoke Chamorro, uh, some, some form of Spanish, he could interview them. I mean, he could translate for for Gurner. So that's what he did. He and the other two priests on Saipan. Gurner made a point of this because it was the only way he could talk to the Saipanese witnesses. And he also knew that because these uh, native Saipanese were uh, Catholics, had all been converted to Catholicism much earlier by the Spanish, he knew that they would not lie in the presence of the priests. Gurner had this going for him as well. This is um, something that the critics and the naysayers will uh, like to lie about, and they say they like to say that that the native Saipanese uh, wanted to be in the spotlight, and they told Gurner only uh, they told him what they what he they thought he wanted to hear about seeing Earhart and all this. That you know that was completely the truth is the opposite. They didn't really want to talk to him at all, and they and everything he got out of them had to be pried out of them with with the help of the priests. 
or in, when you try to get it all covered, it's impossible. There's like 10,000 threads to this story in this book, and they go in all different directions. And, and once you get on one, you know, you, get, you, you can easily get off where you were before, but it, it all relates. Everything comes together at the end, you know. Everything comes together in this huge, gigantic mountaintop of evidence which dwarfs everything else uh, in its entirety. There are there is no uh, other evidence because evidence there is a there is a definition for what's a theory and there's a definition for what constitutes evidence. There is no evidence whatsoever for Nicomararo, which is what everybody sees whenever they, they, they turn on their TV or look on their internet about the latest in Earhart developments. It's usually Nicomararo. Okay, with Tigar going back there for the 12th or the 13th time, it's hard, it's hard to keep up. Or once in a while, we get Nauticos in their search of the ocean floor around Howland Island. That happens occasionally, too. Okay, anything to keep the sheeple out here distracted and away from the truth is, is uh, you know, is the operative message. You did mention um, uh, just a few moments ago Matilda Areola, and uh, while I, while I'm listening to you, I found her a statement that you had. That actually, this is from your Mike Campbell with Marie Castro uh, paper. Right. That yeah. You, go ahead that and do that. Done. Yeah. Mrs. Yeah. Matilda Shoda San Nicholas, the former Matilda Fausto Areola, told Gervais Dinger and Father Bendowski that she lived next door to the to the hotel. That meaning the the Kobayashi Ryukan where she was held, most people say, for maybe seven days, right? that she lived next door to that hotel with her family in 1937 and saw the American girl in the hotel. And twice during the seven days she stayed there, she visited me and my younger sister at our home, mirroring Antonio Zapata's time estimate for the woman's stay at the hotel. She described the woman as thin with short hair like a man's and said that the first time she saw her, she looked very pale as though she were sick. My sister and I offered her food, Matilda went on. She accepted it, but ate very little, only a little fruit. The last time the woman visited Matilda and her sister, she had bandages on her left forearm, Matilda said. Also bruises on the right side of her neck. The American girl liked my younger sister very much, and on this second visit when my sister was doing a geography lesson, the American girl helped her draw correctly the location of the Mariana Islands in relation to the other islands in the Pacific. Later, a busboy told Mathilde the American girl had died at the hotel. He said the bed she slept on was soaked with blood and that before she died, the American girl had been going very often to the outside toilet, Mathilde recalled. Later, the busboy asked me to make two wreaths for burial. When Gervais showed Mathilde several photos of Amelia Earhart, she said, it looks like the same girl. A very yeah, it's uh, this is very close to the. She's very close to uh, Amelia's death in what in what she's telling uh, Gurner in this, and also he, she also talked to Gervais and uh, yeah, it was Gervais and Dinger the one you're, that you're quoting now. Uh, she co- she talked to Gurner and told him much the same. There was another one, Joaquina Cabrera on Saipan, who also worked at the hotel. The Kobayashi Royka and did and did uh, Amelia's clothes actually washed her clothes. She also told Garner about about her knowledge and and she was told that uh, Amelia died from dysentery or 
I don't think they used the word dysentery. They used the word amoeba in those days, and that, that and that translated translated to dysentery. Matilda is related to. She was interviewed by Marie Castro. Marie Castro is now 86 years old on Saipan, and she was interviewed by Marie Castro in the in the 80s. And Marie Castro wrote her own book, and uh, we need to talk about what's going on on Saipan later. One of the most moving paragraphs in that booklet, and again, that was from Matilde Fausto Areola, was when she said that one day she came out into the yard Meaning, uh, meaning Amelia came out into the yard, and she looked very sick and sadder than usual. I gave her a piece of fruit, and she smiled. Then she gave me a ring from her finger and put her hand on my head in friendship. The next day, one of the police came and got some black cloth from my father and had him make some paper flowers. The man said the lady had died, and they were going to bury her. That was sad, and, I, and, and if anyone ever found that ring, whew, that, would be, yeah. that would be a find. Yeah, well, you know what? The Gurner went so, goes on for pages in his book about this ring, at least a page or two. Okay, he went crazy over there trying to find this ring that did. Matilda that Matilda gave to her niece, and that um, her niece then gave it to somebody else or whatever was lost. And Gurner practically tore the house apart trying to find it, trying trying to find this ring. You want you want sad? This is even this is more this is sadder. Not that ring. If he would have found that ring, it would have meant it would have meant a lot to him, and it would have meant something to people that believe in the truth. It would have meant nothing yeah. to the American media. Yeah, I agree it with would you. have meant it would have meant nothing to uh, to the quote unquote objective American media. In fact, they are not interested in in learning the truth at all. That's why, as, as I said, told you when, uh, in the first part of this, that that's why this story has fallen to obscure people such as myself, Thomas Devine, Vic, uh, Loomis, and a few other people to tell this story because nobody else will do it because the government doesn't want it done, and they, 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 they just uh, it, there's a blackout, just like a, almost a complete blackout on this. I feel sometimes I wonder if my when you know if and when my blog's going to be coming down. Uh, Let's talk about the flag officers and the stories uh, that they that, that we got from at least three very very well known flag officers. Why don't you start with Nimitz? Okay. Well, uh, Fred Gurner had known uh, Admiral Nimitz, who was the, the the last of the five star Navy admirals. Nimitz was commander in chief Pacific Fleet uh, during World War II. His name is uh, very well known. Uh, uh, Fred Gurner had known Nimitz from another production that they had worked on. I think it was right around 61 or 2, something like that. Gurner looked at Nimitz as almost like a father figure. He really respected him a lot. He was always trying to pump him for information about the Earhart thing. Nimitz was very re reluctant to tell him anything during the, the first several years. Uh, after uh, uh, Gurner had gone to Saipan, he had been there four times, and still Nimitz had not said anything about his knowledge of Earhart. Because he wasn't allowed to, basically. He was he was still uh, considered active duty, even though he was retired, but he was still considered, he was a five-star admiral, and he was still, you know, the he was uh, privy to all this top-secret information, okay, about Earhart. But Nimitz was was you know was standing back watching all this happen and uh, with with uh, Gurner and working on his book in 1965 a year before Gurner's book 
was published. Gurner was going to Washington, D.C. to interview uh, General Green, General Wallace Green, who was the, at the time, on Saipan, a lieutenant colonel in the 2nd Marine Division, and who was said to have been the one who found the Earhart plane, or at least taken responsibility for finding it, on Saipan. Okay, so, uh, and Devine brought th all this out in his book as well about, about General Green. In 1965, right before Gurner was, was allowed to go to the Pentagon and talk to Green and interviewed Green about his knowledge, which, of course, Green thoroughly denied anything, before he went, Gurner said, and he wrote about this in his book, that he talked to Nimitz. He had a phone call with Nimitz, and Nimitz told Gurner, I'm quoting now, now that you're going to Washington, Fred, I want to tell you Earhart and her navigator did go down in the marshals and were picked up by the Japanese. Gurner said Nimitz told him. The Admiral's revelation appeared to be a monumental breakthrough for the determined newsman and, uh, and is known to, to anybody that's even casually observer, observers uh, of this that have read about it, that know about it. They know about Nimitz. Gurner says, after five years of effort, the former commander of U.S. naval forces in the Pacific was telling me it had not been wasted. That must have been okay. a great, great feeling. It, yeah, it, I can imagine it to, was. To get all that positive reinforcement at the same time, you know, he's battling this world where he's got the truth in so many different versions, but nobody, nobody wants to accept it. There's no hard proof to lay down on top of it. Very, very frustrating. We don't have any record of him saying anything more mm -hmm. to Gurner after that. Uh, however, we don't know. We just there's the Gurner left 900 files behind uh, at the Nimitz Museum at, Fred's, at Fredericksburg, Texas. Gurner left 900 files a, at this museum. Uh, a few researchers have have been to those files. Have I was able to to uh, not to go there in person, but I was able to work with them and to get some of those files mailed to me when I was working on the on the book. I mean, Gurner devoted his life to it. You talked about the, the the huge number of files. This was all letters and communiques and and uh, files that he'd put together, witness files, videos, right? Witness testimony. Right. I mean, mountains of yeah. I'm not sure. I haven't added up the years that he that he put in, but I'm getting I'm getting close. Okay, he started this in uh, 1960. He died in 1994. Okay, so that's 34 years. Yeah, but Gurner was quiet a lot of that time, too. He wasn't always doing things during that time. He was very sick for a while in the 80s. He had cancer. and He, he didn't write much outside of his book. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't have a blog or anything like that. And he wrote, he kept these files, and he left them at, at, at Fredericksburg for me. And the thing about Fredericksburg is amazing. They used to have, just to show you how bad it's getting, it originally, back in the, I don't, I'm not sure exactly when it began. I think it was at, soon after his book was published. They had a an arc. As you entered the museum at Fredericksburg, you, they actually had those words of Nimitz to, to Gurner. Now that you're going to Washington, I want to tell you, Earhart and her navigator did go down in the marshals and were picked up by the Japanese. Those words were actually for anyone that would would enter would see those words at the Fredericksburg Museum. Okay. At some point, let me think now. At some point after uh, before 2012, those words came down. They're no longer there anymore, and they will not. I called them and talked to them 
about the book, about the first edition of the book, and I want—I was—I was really thinking. Well, since you know it's the Nimbus Museum, I think it would be pretty natural that they would have—they would at least uh, give people a chance to, to to have the to stock the book. You know, just stock the book for visitors. They would not—they would not even consider it stocking the truth at last in their bookstore. Okay, they—they they, they just completely denied anything about Gurner, and they said this is not part of our mission. Blah blah blah. I wrote about it extensively. They're, There's house, an they're housing the Gurner Library, the Gurner Library there, right? Well, yeah, they they kept they allowed him to keep his files there, okay. But I I, I would bet you that I that I that I can't get my hands on them anymore yeah, after what I've written about the museum and Glenn McDonald of MilitaryCorruption.com, a huge website with millions of visitors, also wrote about it as well. Hmm. You know, we uh, about the uh, air uh, the uh, Nimbus Museum. And their disgraceful behavior about all this—they just behaved uh, very badly. Okay, they just—they're just—they're just now part of the U.S. Uh, ruling a, cl- a class, the establishment, the media uh, establishment. That's all. They're—they're not—they're not, uh, not interested in the truth whatsoever. So, if any of our one thousand, if any of our one thousand one listeners are down uh, near that museum in Fredericksburg, Texas, we'd love to have you go in there and then contact us at facebook.com forward slash one thousand one heroes which you know that we keep that alive and going every day for conversation. And let us know exactly what you find in that museum and how supportive they are of Mike Campbell's work and of Fred Gurner's work. I would love to hear from you on that one. I'm sure they don't have Gurner's book anymore in there. Uh, maybe they can ask uh, why they don't carry uh, Amelia Earhart the truth at last. Yeah. Maybe they can ask somebody down there. Yeah, They'll guys, get- ask, ask that for me, somebody down there, would you please? We'd appreciate it. And let me know at, uh, at 1001 Heroes. Thanks. At, at the Facebook Facebook.com yeah, I, forward slash 1001 Heroes. I know, I know a, a guy that was a researcher that actually did that, that, did, that went down there and asked, and asked to meet with the boss down there about that, okay? He was completely blown off and ignored. <laughs> I'd like to hear the story of General Alexander A. Vandergrift. What's his story in relationship to Gurner and in relationship to Earhart? Vandergrift is, is one of three. Actually, we, now we have four flag officers who have talked about Earhart on Saipan, but I only have three in the book because these are the most important ones, and the other one came later, and plus the source of the fourth one, Admiral James Russell, uh, who was who became vice CNO uh, in, in the 80s. My, my source would not allow his name to be used, but Vandergrift was the 18th Commandant of the Marine Corps, during World War II, he was he was the the Marine Corps boss, and he wrote a letter to Gurner. Actually, we think it was his wife that wrote the letter in 1971. I'm quoting now for uh, pieces of the letter. General Tommy Watson, who commanded the Second Marine Division during the assault on Saipan and stayed on that island after the fall of Okinawa, on one of my seven visits of inspection of his division, told me that it had been substantiated that Miss Earhart met her death on Saipan. The handwritten letter states. That is the total knowledge that I have of this incident. In writing to you, I did not realize that you wanted to quote my remarks about Miss Earhart, and I would rather that you would not, period. Okay, now, <laughs> obviously, um, Vandegrift knew a lot more than he told Gurner, okay? He was the boss of the Marine Corps. He knew everything that happened over there on Saipan during the war. The way he worded the letter to, to Gurner he gave him he gave himself plausible deniability with the way he wrote it. General Tommy Watson, who he named as his source, 
was dead, okay? Legally speaking, his letter is hearsay, blah, blah, blah. We know it's true because why would, why would Vandergrift even bother? Okay, he was a Medal of Honor winner in World War II. Why would he even bother to, to tell Gurner this or to even respond to him? He did because he knew it was true. He saw what Gurner had been going through all these years. He saw Nim he knew about Nimitz's statement. And so Vandergrift just figured, I'm going to encourage Gurner too. And he probably figured, I'm sick of having to, to keep my mouth shut about all this because it's because it doesn't deserve to be covered up. He was a decent human being, better than a decent human being. He was an incredible individual. He risked his pension, really, and he risked all kind of hostility from the government in talking to Gurner about this. However, what he told Gurner in, in this 1971 letter was never really made known to the public. It wasn't made known to the public. I had to find it in, in, in the files in Fredericksburg, Texas. It was never broadcast anywhere. It was never put out. So basically, Gurner sort of respected him and respected, respected his wishes not to, not to broadcast this. Then we have the third general, Graves B. Erskine. Okay, Graves B. Erskine, in five years earlier, in November 66, this was shortly after Gurner's book came out, The Search for Amelia Earhart, sold 400,000 copies. This is right after it came out. Graves B. Erskine, who was the second-in-command on Saipan during the Saipan, the Battle of Saipan. He was uh, second in command of the V Amphibious Corps, which was the group that was in charge of the entire operation on Saipan. Okay, if anything happened on Saipan, Graves Erskine knew about it. In 1966, Gurner invited him to the KCBS radio studio in San Francisco to go on the air with him, and he accepted. He went on the air with Gurner, but he did not tell him what I'm about to tell you. He told, before he went on the air, he told a newsman, a KCBS newsman named Dave, Dave McElhatton, and he told Jules Dundees, the CBS West Coast a vice president. Before he went on the air with Gurner, he told, uh, Graves Erskine told him this. He said, it was established that Earhart was on Saipan. You'll have to dig out the rest for yourselves. Okay, yeah, so that he was, did not. That's an incredible story. Yeah, and he did not even tell Gurner this on the air. Embellishment is not necessary in any of this. The truth is is enough. Is more than enough. Okay, so I don't even know what he and Gurner talked about on the air that day. <laughs> All I know is what he told. I've got a chuckle. People. It brings it brings up a memory for me. If you don't mind me sharing a little personal anecdote. Go ahead. I've sure. done a lot of research on astronauts. With regard to uh, contact, uh, sighting uh, extraterrestrial craft, and they are, because they want to keep their pensions and they want to keep their public respect, they're remarkably close-lipped about uh, talking about any of those subjects. And it was, uh, there was an episode of Frasier that's, I don't know in what year or season it was, but Frasier had uh, John Glenn as a guest to his studio. And while Glenn was in the studio, uh, he thought he was talking on the mic, but uh, the mic was off because outside the studio, Frazier and some other employees were having arguments over something totally not involved at all with, with John Glenn's being a guest there. And through the window of the office, you could see, <laughs> you could see Glenn very animated talking on the microphone and making uh, signs of little pointy fingers above the head 
as if he were discussing something <laughs> something that he had seen and uh, and given the world a scoop on it. But actually, the mic was off at the time, and and uh, when he was uh, approached on it later, of course, closed lip, nothing to say. <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'll never yeah. forget that scene. That just had me cracking up. Occasionally, people, I got a very interesting story the other day about the, about uh, somebody that talked to a UFO witness. That's a that is a huge. That's another thing, completely different. But it's also a sacred cow. It's another it's, sacred it's cow. It's a very sacred cow, and there's a lot of similarities here. Although one involved war, and the other one involves our government's knowledge of advanced uh, crafts and civilizations. Uh, the fact that they do remain so close-lipped. And because they have so much to risk by opening their mouths, there's a lot of similarity there. And let's do the ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence. And yeah, I think did their report in 1960 in Saipan. Why did they come to Saipan to do another report after they said that, hey, she sank at sea in 1937? The ONI report is the most important document that's associated with the Earhart uh, disappearance. The most important. Um, official government document that that was done and that the public has never heard of it's never been discussed in any newspaper that i could find even to this day the, uh, it's a it was declassified in 1967 this document it was done in 1960 it was it was um, declassified in 1967 i'm going to read a little bit about it and then we'll go back and forth okay on this i think that it's okay. very important to get this to get the details right on this so that people can really begin to understand the depth and the breadth of the blackout of the truth and the error disappearance it goes far deeper than than any other sacred count that I'm aware of because uh, this is a document that was actually even declassified that still is never ever mentioned in any media whatsoever. I've done massive searches, newspaper uh, archive searches, and it's it's never been mentioned anywhere. There's That's a copy of it in the back of my book, all of it. It's nine pages. It's not a long document. It's not like the uh, the Warren report, the Warren Commission report with Kennedy, but it's but it, it's different. But it serves the same basic purpose, which is to d d distract people away from the truth and to whitewash the yeah. truth. Yeah, it's been bleached. Right. So, yeah, it's like I wrote the 1960 Navy whitewash that came to be known as the ONI report is among the most the most tangible examples of government mendacity in the Earhart case. Probably the, the most tangible. But the document has since escaped all but the most discerning and, uh, and, and has been entirely ignored. The basis of the document started in 1960 when Divine was aware of Gurner's work on Saipan. Uh, this was making national, so, not national news, different ways, in, in different ways, shapes, and forms, Devine was learning about about Gurner. He wasn't learning about it from the New York Times or the Washington Post, but he was aware of it. So he went to the the local paper up, the New Haven Register. Oh. Devine went to the New Haven Register in 1960. He told them about his gravesite experience. Devine says that he was shown the gravesite of an Okinawan of, of Earhart and Noonan by an Okinawan woman on on Saipan in 1945. He told the, the, uh, the newspaper about this uh, Okinawan woman and what he he was told. He believed that it was the gravesite of Earhart and Noonan. Uh, Noonan. This made big headlines in 1960. 
in New Haven, Connecticut. The ONI in Hartford found out about this, of course, the Office of Naval Intelligence, and they came to his house and interviewed Devine. Devine told him basically the same story. He held back his eyewitness story encounter with the, with the Electra, his sighting of the Electra and the Electra destru destruction. He held that back from the ONI. He only told the ONI about his alleged Earhart gravesite sighting because I, because I don't know. He wanted. He wanted. He didn't want to give them everything he had. He was suspicious, of course. He knew what Gurner was looking for. Gurner was looking for the grave site too. So, based on what Devine told the ONI, the ONI began an investigation on Saipan. Thomas Blake was the, was the agent that interviewed Devine at his home in 1960, and Joseph Patton was the ONI agent that went to Saipan and did their investigation, quote-unquote investigation, based on, Cy uh, on the Divine's evidence. They were also, of course, aware of Gurner's work. They, they wanted to do something official that would debunk the idea that she was on Saipan. And not, not only the, the ostensible reason was to investigate Divine, but it was not only just about Divine. It was about, uh, about showing that she, could, she was not on Saipan. But as hard as they tried, they, they couldn't keep it all. Anyone that knows how to read between lines can tell that this whole, this whole document is all just uh, rife with deceit. It doesn't have half the truth that it should. It's missing so much. that And it's, it's in other missing, words. It's missing. Oh, go ahead. Rather than read, which I should be reading. For example, they never interviewed, Pat never interviewed Josephine Blanco Akiyama. At the time, she was the most important of all the eyewitnesses. Her her account was never included in the ONI report. I think I've, got the, I think I've got the paragraph you're looking for if you want me to read it. Yeah, go ahead. Despite the Navy agency's reliance on former Japanese collaborators, its failure to interview native witnesses whose testimony supported Earhart's presence on Saipan, and its dismissal of the eyewitness accounts of Josephine Blanco Akiyama and Jose Matsumoto, her brother-in-law, for the most Species of reasons. Patton nonetheless included the testimony of Josephine's mother, as well as statements from former prison guards that suggested Earhart and Noonan may have landed in the Marshall Islands before being taken to Saipan by the Japanese. Quote, the hearsay evidence advanced by two informants set forth supra. Jesus Salas and Jose Villagomez tended to indicate that the Japanese at Saipan had known at least the approximate location of the subject's crash to have been in the Marshall Islands, Patton wrote. The hearsay evidence given by Mrs. Antonia Blanco indicated that subject may possibly have been brought to Saipan by Japanese military. So to be fair, Patton does go that far. That is, that is direct from the uh, uh, government uh, document, the ONI report. The hearsay evidence given by Ms. Anto Mrs. Antonio Blanco indicated that the subject may possibly have been brought to Saipan by the J Japanese military. Why is that never, ever cited in any newspaper discussion, any TV production about the Earhart disappearance? Never is it ever, ever discussed okay yeah, you're right so, there's, there's a there's a smoking oni proof right there if if, uh, if a good journalist wanted it it's right there and there are many uh, yeah this is it, these it guys smells. were serious about going in there and if anybody 
if anybody was going to be covering it up, it would have been the ONI, but they say it right here in this report. They couldn't, so, yeah, they couldn't so you even... So you've got to be fair to them, too. They may have, they may have whitewashed uh, a lot of the facts that did come out of Saipan and that they found and that they only tended to look at certain ones, but still, they put it right in this report. Well, they well, what they did was they did the best they did the best they could, but they messed up a little bit, you know, with that <laughs> statement. But they introduced. Devine saw the report in 1963. It was declassified in 1967. Devine found three obvious lies in the report that were so that were so egregious that they that they took it out of the 1967 official report. Devine writes about it extensively, and so do I, about what they took out. I don't, we don't need to get into all the detail of it. It's all in the book. It's all explained about how the ONI manipulated witnesses, had introduced witnesses that told them what they, if you anybody told the, uh, anybody what they wanted to hear, it was certain witnesses telling Joseph Patton what he wanted to hear. That it wasn't about that Amelia Art was not was never there or the plane was never there. Okay, as an example, we could just look at what he introduced, the information that Patton introduced into his report about Josephine's mother. Josephine's mother told Patton, "Quote: Her daughter came to her shortly after noon and was very excited that she had seen a white woman who had white hair cut short like a man's and a very white face." Patton continued, Blanco said her daughter was very excited because it was the first time her daughter had ever seen a white woman. According to Mrs. Blanco, her doctor told her that the woman had a men's clothes and had a jacket over her shoulders. Mrs. Blanco said her doctor daughter told her that the woman was sitting on a bench combing her hair and that there was an airplane in the harbor. Okay, that's fine. But this thing about the white hair, Josephine would never have described Amelia Earhart as having white hair. Okay, this is this is a Mrs. Bl- I write Mrs. Blanco's alleged re- recollection, recollection of Josephine describing the woman's hair as white is bizarre, particularly when considering her account to Joe Gervais and Robert D- Dinger during the same period. Okay, Mrs. Blanco was the second witness they interviewed on Saipan, and she said nothing about white hair, about or that Josephine had mentioned a plane crash. Instead, she told them. It wasn't safe to know such things in those days, referring to her feelings upon hearing. Jo- the first thing Josephine did after seeing Amelia Hart was to tell her mother everything that she saw. Right? Of course, as, as anyone would. That's, uh, the mother told her to be quiet. Uh, she, she told me about the plane crash and the man and woman in it. It was seven or years before the invasion of Saipan, blah, blah, blah. They, this, this report has never, has never been uh, cited by any alleged Earhart in, investigators except... Thomas Devine in his book, Gurner just briefly mentioned it in his book at the end, and I mentioned it, and I wrote, go over it extensively in my book, in this book, in, in, uh, and to discuss it and have a full copy of the ONI report at the end of the book. Well, Mike, you know, think about it like this. If it were going to be covered today by a responsible media outfit, who would do it and why? Who would do it and why? Mm-hmm. The idea of the Earhart mystery and that the, and all and all these BS theories. This is all become so ingrained within the cultural furniture of the United States 
not only the United States, but the, the, the entire West. The whole idea that it's a mystery is, is such a, a piece of cultural furniture that nobody, I don't see anybody doing it, really. I mean, it, it, that's, why it's, uh, that's why I'm doing it. That's why it's fallen to someone like me to actually do it. Because nobody will do it. Nobody will touch it. People will like you. You're not afraid to do it. Okay, but as far as any sort of a, a true a big time establishment media doing it, it's never been done. It's never been done. Someone with juice would have to break through this glass ceiling is what we have. We have this glass st stone wall going on in Washington that's been going on ever since for 81 years, going on 82 years. What what would it take? What would it take to break down? It's going to take. It's going to take. It's going to take a piece of the plane. Yeah, it's going to no. take. It's going to take uh, no. concrete evidence. I think. No, it won't. It won't. We already have a mountain of evidence. A piece of the plane is not going to make any difference. And that would completely be ignored. It would be completely just shoved aside, just like everything else has been. There would be some. Uh, some. Uh, if it ever got into any sort of uh, public knowledge, it would be. It would be explained away. A piece of the plane, they could find her bones, believe me, and they would deny it. <laughs> no, you, this, you got a point there. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've studied this. This is what I mean about this thing with the media, okay, is so insidious. It is so deeply insidious They that, that um, no amount of evidence, no amount of evidence is going to change. Something else has to change the media's stance on this. And, and that something would be a presidential order. A presidential, only a presidential order is going to spring this thing wide open. And, it, and Trump is the first president that we've had that would be capable of doing this. I okay. think someone's going to need to recommend uh, both Amelia and Fred for Medal of Honor. And in the statement of how they earned the Medal of Honor, there it would be. And then they would get their honor, and the nation could put it to rest. From your lips to God, to God's ears, okay? Who's going to be the one to recommend them for the Medal of Honor? Who's, go who's going to be the one to put the bug in, in Trump's ears? Is it going to be Ivanka Trump or Jared? I seriously doubt it. Who around Trump is going to actually have the the fortitude to stand up and recommend that Trump do the right thing, especially when, when you consider what's going on now with the in, practically the entire American media tr trying for, uh, to, to scalp him and to get him out of office for two years with Mueller. Trump has got a thousand things on his plate already, much less to have to worry about Amelia Earhart. Okay, I wish it wasn't so. I really do. But uh, I don't see it happening. I just don't. What wish haven't we hit in our story? I think the most, the most important thing that I think people need to know is that is they can find all these details and they can become completely enlightened by buying my book. Okay, and and you know I hate to be you know a materialist about this. This has never been about money for me. Never. I've been on this story now for 32, going on 32 years, and I've never thought about money, and I've never made much money about it, okay? The, my book, Amelia Earhart, The Truth at Last, second edition, not the first, the second edition, okay, is in and out of the top spot of over 1,000 Earhart titles on Amazon, not because of, of the media, because people that want to find it have found it. It's number one of all 350-plus Kindle titles on 
Amazon only because people look for it and find it, not because they're being directed there by anyone in the media. Thank, you know, I thank God for Amazon and, and, and for Amazon putting the book on there so people can find it. But still, the interest, interest in Earhart is relatively nil, just nil. This idea that everybody's interested in the Earhart thing is, is not true. Only a few people over the age of 60 are truly in interested. The other ones that were few and far between, I have 31 years of, of experience talking to people about Earhart, and the only people that are really interested are the older people. When they were around, they can recall, or you know, recall actually sitting in front of their radios and wondering. And she was such a beloved figure, such a beloved figure in 1937, far more beloved than FDR was. And FDR, and we never, we really haven't gotten gotten much into the motivation for keeping this all quiet. Really, we hadn't talked about that much, but it's, it should be self-evident by now. It's all about FDR. It's all about him knowing that the Japanese had had her in 1937. We can just about pinpoint the time learned in about two weeks to a month after she was uh, after she was taken to Saipan. Uh, the Japanese traffic radio traffic would have been translated. He would have known that they had her on Saipan. Okay, and he decided not to do anything, not to release the information, and he left them. She, he left her and Fred Noonan to the tender mercies of the Japanese. This is what it's all about. This is what it's always been about. And don't let anybody tell you that because it happened 80 years ago, it's not important anymore. The legacy of FDR and the Democrat Party is not ever too old to worry about. If, that, if this ever came out, it, was ever, it ever became public knowledge that FDR sat on the truth about Amelia Earhart, it would ruin all the – think of how many books would have to be rewritten. Think of how much history would have to be rewritten. Think of how many people would have egg on their face. This is not going to happen because of all these, all these considerations when you think about it. Okay, When he was in Yalta, he signed away 100 million Eastern European lives to Stalin. That was a statistic in 1945. That was a statistic that he that – he, Lived through, and he and and it didn't ruin him. But if if and if not, but if the public ever really learned, it was known what he did with two people, Earhart and Noonan on Saipan. He could never live that down, and he would his future would have been ashes. He never would have been elected in 1940. I think uh, a lot of the people who listen to this show are pretty familiar with their history, and in episode one. We set up the geopolitical framework for what was happening at the time they took their flight. And we set up all the motivations that they would have had to report back on what they had seen as they flew over Japanese fortified islands and airstrips in the Pacific and the value of that information to FDR. The one thing I didn't mention in episode one was that literally less than a week after they crash landed, at Mili Atoll in the Marshall Islands, the Japanese Imperial Army, which had already been on a war footing, attacked the mainland of China at Shanghai and Nanking and killed tens of thousands of innocents in their successful attempt to conquer China and steal its resources. And that That's was right. when a lot of people feel that World War II began. All this within days. There's Japan on a war footing 
and all this within days of, of, of the downing of the plane and of the capture of Earhart and Noonan. So if anybody thinks that Japan was sitting back on their peaceful butts, uh, not doing anything with no aspirations other than, 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 than a kumbaya world, that was not so in 1937. They were on a war footing throughout, and they had been preparing airstrips in preparation for an attack on Pearl Harbor in 1936 and 1937, they'd been building destroyers and battleships and aircraft carriers and fortifying islands leading all through the Pacific toward Japan. And their armies were preparing to invade China, which they did, like I said, within a week of Earhart's crash landing. So something important to know as you start to put all this together in your mind and realize who we were dealing with. When all we were happened. dealing absolutely. We were dealing with absolute barbarians, and there, in the in the truth about Japan in in their World War II atrocities, has still never been admitted to by Japan. They still have whitewashed their role in the war, calling themselves victims, uh, uh, using the the bombs to to victimize themselves and to demonize the United States in their books. They have never really admitted the even the rape of Nanking, where they, they killed about 400,000 men, women, and children. When Iris Chang wrote her book, The Rape of Nanking, in 1999, I believe it was published, that was a huge a bestseller, a huge bestseller in this country, The Rape of Nanking. It was banned in Japan, and she was hounded by Japanese people and operatives up until the time that she killed herself in 2003 with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Iris Chang w was sorry. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if she was sorry but that she ever gotten involved with, it, with that uh, research. But when she wrote that book, that book was huge. It was a huge revelation because it had, the rape of Nanking had not been properly ever covered Okay, until Irish Chang did it, and then and then soon after she 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 committed suicide under very strange circumstances, and we still don't know the whole story on why Irish Chang killed herself. Okay, this is some very very heavy stuff. Okay, the Japanese are never ever going to admit their role in the Earhart de uh, death, not a chance. No, there is no chance of that ever happening. They they still haven't admitted a lot of the war crimes that they committed. During World War II, and I we want to talk make it about clear that this, this is the Japanese military. Uh, the Japanese military operated every breath they took, every prayer they prayed was to their emperor, and every order they got they followed. And their belief that they were the pe the chosen ones, the people, the pure ones, the clean ones, and that belief enabled them to treat all prisoners and all captured islanders with. Absolute, treat, treat them like dogs, to kill them at will, to threaten them at will. Uh, beheadings were common. All kinds of torture and death were present with the Japanese military. The Japanese people, another thing. They were, they were definitely never told exactly what was going on. The government media establishment in Japan was very strict about that. Those people were literally brainwashed, just like the people, uh, just like the citizens in Saipan were brainwashed by the Japanese when they were told that the American soldiers were coming, they were going to eat them alive. And that's why when the, when the, when the American soldiers did end up on Saipan, thousands of men, women carrying babies, children, ran over clifftops 
and fell 100 feet on the rocks at the sea because they didn't want to be caught by the Americans who were going to literally eat their hearts. Now that's, that's the kind of trash that the Japanese government told their people and their military. It was a hateful, hateful military. The, the odds of you being, if you, were, if you were a captured soldier, captured military, in this case, Earhart and Noonan were captured. You had, uh, I hope I get these percentages right, if you were caught by Nazis, you had about, a, I think it was a 90% chance of survival, surviving prison camp. If Better you, than that. If Better you, than probably that. Probably 95, 97. If you were caught by the Japanese, you had maybe a one in eight chance of surviving prison camp. Well, we talk about that in the book. We get into that in the book. We get into the uh, Japanese atrocities. Uh, Prisoners of the Japanese is the Bible uh, on the uh, on the wartime atrocities. Gavin Dawes of Hawaii, a professor, wrote a, a, a great book called Prisoners of the Japanese. And a Japan American uh, Allied prisoner prisoners of war prisoners of the Japanese. Okay, whether they be American or any other Allies, uh, one of three died in captivity during the war, one of three. In, in Europe, prisoners of the Germans, uh, 4%. Four, I think it was 4 to 6%. 6% max died in captivity. It's not even close. I mean, the way POWs died in Japanese hands. Another recent uh, famous book, Laurel uh, Hildebrand wrote, uh, Unbroken. That deals with atrocities as well. Okay, so we're just, we're beginning to you know scratch the surface and educating people about how bad it was. Okay, you, you and bad. I have purposely avoided uh, discussing theories in these last two episodes. I think we've done a good job of bringing forth a lot of the testimony and a lot of the witnesses and a lot of the real stuff. That if it, if this were a court case, this would all be considered. If this was an ONI report, this would all be considered, and none of it would be thrown out. It's like the, it's like I, I often say, John. I I know you murderers convict, are convicted and executed on the smallest fraction of the evidence that we have that we have presented in the last two episodes, and that my book presents. People are executed every day on the smallest fraction of that evidence, and yet the establishment media calls our evidence not evidence. They call it speculation and myth. I think the words getting out there. I think it's, it's little shows like mine and books like yours. Um, each one is a candle that's being lit, and I think there's a lot more candles being lit. And I'm not going to rest. By the time by the time I check out, I'm going to see honor being given by the United States government to the sacrifices of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. One way or the other, I well, want to be I want to be a part of getting that done. That means you're not going to forget this. You're not going to forget about it. You know, it's not just a show to you. Mm-hmm. You're going to bring this with you. No, this, this subject never was you. a show to me. Good. That's good. Because we need all the help we can get. That's for sure. Well, thank you, Mike Campbell. Thank you for all that you have put into this over the last 30 years. Thank you for all the work you've done, all that you've written, for the blog that you maintain daily, for your great books, for all the, the network of people that you've gathered around you. And thank you, most of all, for the fight that I know you're never going to give up to bring honor to those flyers and their history. Thanks, John. Great to be with you. Thank you. Listeners, I want to tell you, you need to go to www.airhearttruth.com, E-A-R-H-A-R-T-T-R-U-T-H.com, 
and you're going to find a wealth of information in there if you want to get more familiar with exactly what happened to her and Fred Noonan. I want all of you to look for Amelia Earhart, The Truth at Last, second edition, at Amazon.com. And that's Mike's book. It's absolutely excellent. It's going to send you in the right direction. So I highly recommend it to all of you out there. And it'd be a good way of thanking him for coming on this show and taking the time he's taken to let us know what really happened. And here's the story we promised earlier on Marie Castro, who, along with the help of Mike Campbell, is trying to get funding for a planned memorial in Saipan to honor the sacrifice of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, the first victims of Japanese aggression in the Pacific prior to Pearl Harbor. Marie Castro is really something. She came back to she lived on she was born on Saipan. She was four years old when Amelia Earhart was on Saipan. She was told about this white woman by her family. Uh, she, she, she was not an eyewitness at the age of four. She heard about it. She, um, she always remembered this. And then, and then later on, she left the island of Saipan. She went to, uh, came to the United States. She was uh, a Catholic nun for 17 years. She didn't really renounce her vows. She was given the opportunity to get out of her vows, and she stayed in Kansas City, where she uh, she stayed in the, in the Kansas City area for 50 years. She taught the public school system in Kansas City. So she was in the United States for 50 years before returning to Saipan in 2016. And I've become very close with Marie, uh, all through emails. And this is what, where this booklet came from that you just alluded to. That I, Marie wrote a, a, a rough version of this booklet, and I took it, and I fashioned it into a booklet. And so Marie Castro has, in, 19, in, in 2017, September, uh, formed a committee on Saipan, formed a group whose mission, whose, whose uh, goal is to build a monument, a memorial monument to, Sapir, uh, to Amelia Earhart on Saipan. It's called the Amelia Earhart Memorial Monument Committee. And that is Marie Castro's brainchild. And, and this happened in September 2017. There's been Since then, there's been many uh, articles in the local newspaper there, the Mar Mariana Variety. I've written extensively about this on my blog. I've written extensively about the resistance on Saipan to this memorial. I'd say the resistance is running about 99 to 1 uh, against it. Against it. The people on Saipan are determined that they're not going to have this. Uh, this is all a result of the United States propaganda and brainwashing over all the years. These people on Saipan are even more directly propagandized about the, the Earhart thing than the, than the normal person in the street in this country for obvious reasons, because that's where it happened. It happened on Saipan, and our government does not want it to be a, a known thing over there or a popular piece of news, okay? But on the other hand, the Mariana Variety newspaper is, is the major newspaper over there next to the, There's another one called the Saipan Tribune, which has not been helpful at all. The TV station on there has done some interviews with Marie. The Mariana Variety has done several. I can't even count all the stories they've done with her and, 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 and allowed me to publish myself in there. And so they've been as, as, as objectively neutral as I could say, uh, as I could ask for a news source to be. I don't have a complaint with the Mariana Variety. The architect has estimated that it would, it would cost $200,000 
when you see the the photo, the uh, the art that the, the the architect has put forward, it's a beautiful memorial. It's like a a statue, a twelve foot statue in the with in a like a platform with a round backing where there will be an inscription and and it just looks really nice. Two hundred thousand dollars to me seems like a pretty good deal, but uh, we don't have anywhere close to that money, that amount of money raised yet. It's got to come from somewhere. It's got to come, you know, as, as I also always say to Maria, I said, it's, it's more and more, it looks like it's, we have to have somebody with some real juice. Somebody in this country with some real juice that's going to step forward and take on, and take on this, this cause and, and speak on behalf of this worthy cause. Because we don't have anybody like that. This, the news of this memorial, the news of this has never uh, been, been published in, in any single American media except one. And that was recently on the, or, uh, the Coast to Coast AM website with, with the radio station Coast to Coast. They have the website. They run two stories. They ran one in February. Nobody else, no other news organ in this country has even talked about this for obvious reasons. Because if this this memorial ever gets built on Saipan, it's, it could be the first step to government this uh, full government disclosure. More and more people are going to know about it. People are going to say, "What's this about?" They're going to be traveling to the island. They're going to be looking at the uh, uh, buying things there. They're going to be uh, bringing home photos of the memorial. They're, there's just going to be so much more attention now on Saipan and Earhart that they don't want, that the government does not want whatsoever. Okay, so this is what we've been doing, and this this is the most significant development in the in the Amelia Earhart case. This is the most significant thing that's happened since then. There's nothing else going on. Mike, have you the, or any, have you or anyone else set up a fund? All the information about how to about how to donate is on my website. It's on uh, EarhartTruth.com. www.EarhartTruth.com. That's two T's in the middle. E a r h a r t t r u t h dot com, and it's on the front page, and it's on the right side. And you'll see a picture of the memorial monument, all the information that's needed to donate. Okay. Has the wording been chosen for that monument? I, I know you said you've got the uh, design mock-up there. Do you have the wording chosen? No, not at all. Absolutely not. Would uh, it be fair to say that it would honor um, the sacrifice of Noonan and Earhart? Absolutely, it, it, uh, absolutely, it will. Marie has told me that uh, the the the, um, the group there on Saipan has agreed to let me write the the inscription, uh, of course, subject to their approval. But that's quite an honor if it ever happens, you know, for for the work that I've been doing to try to make this happen. Well, that we, would be we've got, a, we've got a lot of listeners out there worldwide, many of whom believe that Earhart and Noonan were on Saipan in Japanese captivity and that they need to be honored as being the first real victims of Japanese aggression in the Pacific. And they have not been by our government, and we're hoping individuals can step forward who believe that uh, a memorial should be erected in their name. This the is it. Hand. Absolutely, John. This is, I mean, this, this is such a worthy cause, and it's just, 
uh, it's really it's, it's been the main focus of my work in the last two years. Although I do, I always try to get something out on my blog that's new within within a week to ten days, sometimes two weeks. I'm always putting new information and new material on my blog. But a lot of it has been about the memorial, about Marie Castro, you know, about this woman who is putting up and, and uh, you know, standing almost alone by herself over there against this top, this mountain of, of uh, hostility and just they don't want anything to do with this and they just uh, it's really in the ignorance that she has to put up with over there is incredible and she and so you know and we you know we wrote this booklet a 35 36 page booklet that she can give out over there to people that are interested to, to hopefully uh, you know get some education going over there but um, you can't educate people that don't want to know the truth. Stands our two-episode show, The Final Truth, Amelia Earhart, with Mike Campbell. And we want to thank Mike very much for his participation. We hope all of you get more involved in the Earhart saga and put a little pressure wherever and on whoever you can so we can get to the truth. And finally have Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan honored as heroes, which is something they deserve very much and something which is long overdue. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and make sure to catch our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days, when radio was king. We'll see you all soon. Bye.